Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to um, Mark chapter 14. Continue to look through this great gospel. A couple announcements I do have. Um, our missionaries to the Philippines were supposed to be here uh, at the, the last Sunday of this month on the 26th, but because of their schedule, they will be here actually next Sunday. So that's Chad and Karamia Dexter, and they'll be here next Sunday. So just being prepared for that, praying for them, and we always want to give them a love offering when they come, so um, be ready to do that. And then also, because uh, of this impending snowstorm that we may have this week, the membership class that is supposed to start this Tuesday, uh, if it doesn't snow, we will meet at 6.30 uh, here at the church. Um, but if it snows, of course, um, it'll be canceled, and we will be meeting in the back, uh, excuse me, next Sunday in the, uh, for Sunday school, all right, for those who signed up for membership class. All right, I think that's all the announcements I have. Let's take our Bibles again, turn to Mark chapter 14, as we continue to look uh, through this gospel, and we are now learning about our Lord and what he what he did so we can be saved and so we can hear the gospel uh, so he can defeat his enemies and uh, reign victorious. And really Mark is uh, giving us this uh, sense that uh, we, w- what we're looking at this morning is the trial of the Son of Man by his enemies. And we go- we're going to see this morning a, really a series of fl- flagrant injustices uh, in our text today, that the Lord endured uh, in behalf of his children. But let me pray before I look at that. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We are grateful, Lord, that we are able to meet together today um, and to be able to listen to your word, listen to the word of the King of Kings. And I pray, Lord, that we would be attentive uh, to your word and be ready to receive it be ready to think through it, and then, Lord, be ready to see where uh, you are moving and changing us, molding and shaping us, transforming our minds, Lord, so we become children of God that are uh, faithful to be servants in your uh, church and to give you praise and glory for all the things that you have and will do in our life. I pray that you would make us those kind of people. And I pray that you would do it by taking the word of God to transform us with it. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 53. I was going to go to the end of the chapter, but I, I think I'm going to end up in verse 65 this morning. And remember, this is uh, the section of Scripture that's talking about the self-sacrifice of the servant, Jesus Christ. And we have already witnessed Jesus' deep agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Jesus prayed to his Father. And each time he prayed, he prayed the same thing. And that prayer was, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So we also uh, witnessed the hell-bent crowd comprised of soldiers and uh, loaned to the temple uh, so the temple uh, guards by the Romans, and then we had the temple police and a bunch of henchmen and underlings and rabble-rousers that were uh, going along to arrest Jesus. Uh, finally, and of course those people were packed with swords and clubs to arrest the Lord. Now, this is of course something the Jewish leadership wanted to do to Jesus for a long time, In verse number 46, it says they wanted to lay hands on him and seize him. But, of course, by divine protection, they were unable to. Also, the leadership did not seize Jesus because they were afraid of the multitude, uh, especially the multitude, remember, that came to Jerusalem. Remember, there's millions of people in Jerusalem for the high holy days. So, and believe me, they're coming to see Jesus. They're coming to find out about this man. And most of them coming have a favorable view of Jesus. 
All right, and but the, of course, the Jewish leadership does not have a favorable view of Jesus, and so they're afraid on uh, of the crowds. And so Jesus' arrest would have to be done in an out of the way place, under the cover of darkness, while most of the multitude in Jerusalem were asleep, and that's exactly what happened. So then Jesus really was arrested; he was led away under guard. And he was led away to be tried by the Jewish leadership. Now, what day is it in the Passion Week? Well, it is early Friday morning, long before dawn, possibly between 2 and 4 a.m. in the morning. It's very early. Most of the worshipers are asleep. And, And so today we're going to learn really specifically about one thing, and I call it the criminal trial of Jesus. Now, this trial really takes place in three stages. Well, I, what, what I, actually, the, the trial has three stages, but in those three stages are six mini-trials. And so Mark, the Gospel of Mark, picks up on the second stage. All right, the first stage would be Jesus is examined by Annas, uh, the former high priest, actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was now the high priest in Jerusalem. And, of course, Annas uh, questioned Jesus about two specific things, about his disciples and about his teaching. Uh, Jesus answered him on those issues. And then stage two uh, is where Mark picks it up. And what we have in stage two, we have a hasty informal trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin. All right, remember the Sanhedrin was the 71 men from the, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and, of course, the elders of Israel. In other words, all of them were there. Nobody was going to miss this event. They were all there, and they were there for one specific reason, what's going to happen with Jesus, all right? And so we're going to find out that Jesus is condemned, he's mocked, and he is beaten. And then there, there's a third stage, that, and that's going to be after dawn, all right? The sun has come up, it's now morning, and then Jesus is going to be formally condemned by the, uh, not only the Sanhedrin, but by the Roman court, all right? So today, we're going to learn about the, really the flagrant injustices Jesus endured for you and for me who are believers. So the first thing we see is that Jesus has a a hasty trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and we're going to see that all the Jewish leadership is there. Notice in verse 53, it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, and the elders and the scribes gathered together. That means the whole religious council were present in full force, and they were ready for action. Now, while this is happening, Peter is following the crowd at a distance. Now, if you notice verse 54, it says, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now, I'm not going to talk about Peter this morning. I'm going to talk about him next time, uh, the, the last Sunday of this month. All right, so I'm going to leave him alone for now. And I think Peter has been uh, kind of viewed in a very, very negative light in the last uh, s- several uh, passages we looked at. But So I'm going to leave him to rest a little bit. We're going to pick him up next time and see how he's doing then. All right, so this morning, also the chief priests... And the council were trying to gather witnesses uh, to come against Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Because uh, isn't it that wouldn't they need charges against Jesus to arrest him? They would, wouldn't they? And if you have charges, then you would need witnesses. Well, if you haven't figured out yet... uh, this whole judicious session is illegal. 
They were seeking testimony from anyone, no matter the truthfulness of their claims. The purpose of this mock trial was to gather evidence against Jesus. For what reason? If you notice in verse number 55, this is the reason for it. Now the chief priests and the whole council, they kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. Now, what is very, very interesting is that, and by the way, the Sanhedrin had no power to inflict the death penalty. Instead, it was their function not to condemn, but to prepare charges on which the criminal could be tried before the Roman governor. All right, so they had no power to put anybody to death. They had no power to condemn anybody. In fact, there was a list of restrictions that the Sanhedrin had put on themselves so they would not be involved in injustices in the court system. In fact, here are some of them. These legal restrictions of these 71 men were as follows. The official meeting place of the Sanhedrin was to be within the temple precincts and only decisions made in the official meeting place within Jerusalem uh, could be an official verdict, right? Well, they're meeting at the home of the high priest, wrong place. Also, the court could not meet at night, nor could it meet during any of the great feasts. Well, they're meeting at night, early in the morning, right, when everybody's asleep, and they're, they're meeting to one of the biggest feasts that Israel has. And so that's another thing that you see the injustices. Also, when evidence was taken, witnesses were examined separately, and their evidence, to be valid, had to agree agree in every single detail. So every witness that came, they would be examined individually, and everything they said had to be corroborated with the other witness, and they had to be exact or they were thrown out as false witnesses, right? And then each individual member of the Sanhedrin must give his verdict separately. In other words, he had a private vote, right? He didn't talk about with the, to the other Sanhedrin. They didn't try to influence each other. One man cannot persuade another to decide the verdict, all right? So now all the votes came in, the 71 votes came in, Right, And so then you determine whether this person is guilty, right? Whatever the percentage is, over the highest percentage, it would mean that the person would be guilty. Now, if the verdict was the verdict of death, a night must elapse before it could be carried out. And why did they do that? So that the court might have a chance to change its mind and decide towards mercy, all right? So they had to leave a whole day before they actually made a decision. And then if a question is asked to the defendant, it could not be a question in which the person on trial could, be, could incriminate themselves. In other words, no person could be asked a direct question in order to get that person to condemn themselves. They weren't allowed to do that. Right? So if you notice in verse 55 of chapter 14, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death. So that means Jesus was arrested. There's no crime against him. There is no witnesses. All the witnesses proved to be a dead-end street. Verse, end of verse number 55. For many were giving false testimonies, right? End of verse number 55. It says, and they were not finding any. They're, they're not finding any reliable witnesses. And then in verse number 56, it says, some stood up. And began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made with hands. And then notice in verse 50, 
that was verse 58, excuse me. No, that was verse 57. Verse 58 says, and we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And look at verse number 59. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So it looks like these witnesses were either in cahoots with the Jewish leadership or they were promised to be paid like they promised to pay Judas. So nothing's coming of this. And then finally, we see that the council had these two witnesses that gave testimony to the same thing. That's what they were looking for. So these stood up, and notice in verse number 57, some stood up and began to give false testimony against him. And what did they say that about the temple being destroyed and then being uh, built in three days? Now, once again, it proved to be false because Jesus did not actually say what these witnesses were claiming. It says in verse 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Jesus actually said in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He wasn't saying he was going to destroy it. He was going to say someone else was going to destroy it. And then in verse 21 of John chapter 2, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. All right, so... They totally missed what was going on, and the crowd missed what was, missed what was going on. But, but remember here, this is, this is really uh, lies and false reports being hurled at Jesus in a, a huge way. And, but, but remember, brethren, that lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons against his children, against God's kids. The enemy loves to harass those who faithfully serve Christ by making serving Jesus uncomfortable, and especially uncomfortable in relationships, especially relationships that at one time or another you may have to have uh, contact with, like the leadership of a nation, right, or the religious leadership, and especially in this case. So, can't forget what it says in, in Matthew 5, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. That's still going to happen. That's still happening today. Christians are often accused of things without proof, without evidence, without facts. And nobody's questioning them because a lot of people are on the same page of that person coming against you. That's going to be a normal, all right, don't think it's strange when that happens, when somebody maligns you for being a believer, for some, somebody twists your words and, and, and makes them say what you never said. That's going to happen. Matter of fact, it's going to happen more than once, and it's going to happen throughout your Christian life. It never, you never can really escape that, all right? But remember, if you're persecuted for a righteous life, for your testimony for Christ, remember, if you're doing it, on account of the Lord Jesus Christ, count it a joy. Count it something that he suffered these things. Why would we think that we're going to be bypassed by those things? We're not. We're going we're gonna to follow in the same steps that Jesus, uh, not to the same extent, of course, but don't think it's strange when those things happen. So the trial at this point should have been over. There's nothing, there's no proof. There's no indictment. There's no reliable and proper testimony or witnesses. And it's clear that the arrest of Jesus was illegal. And the trial of Jesus was unjust. It was a sham. It was a charade. That's what was going on here. See, the trial was illegal by every standard of Jewish, Jewish prudence. And, and thus, Jesus remained silent as accusations were hurled against him. And yet, even with this determination, the Sanhedrinists were unable to construct a case against Jesus, even 
the much-used charge that Jesus had threatened to destroy the temple was insufficient. It turns out to be insufficient. So, of course, at this point, if, you're, if you remember, Mark is writing in a way to try to put you there to, to feel what's going on, to feel the tension that is, is really accumulating in this particular event. The high priest wasn't satisfied and actually was frustrated completely and leaps up because the witnesses were not leading in the council uh, to the council's desired result. And what was the desired result? To put Jesus to death, right? They needed that evidence. They were, weren't getting any of that evidence. So what does he do? Notice in verse number 60, all right? This is what he does. Now, Caiaphas, remember, he's the high priest at the time, tries a different approach, but it is still an illegal approach against their protocol. Caiaphas used the indirect approach using somewhat of a scare tactic. And notice what it says in verse 60. It says, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? See, these two witnesses, he's, in other words, saying, have incriminating testimony against you. And you're not answering? Well, you know, destruction of a worship place was a capital offense. But the scriptures require agreement from at least two witnesses for a conviction. As far as this tribunal was concerned, Jesus was guilty until proven innocent. All right, That's, isn't that opposite? You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty? Well, he's guilty until proven innocent. See, he was not, according to the council, he was not going to be found innocent. They were going to find something on him, but it was not going to come from any of the witness because if, if you waited long enough, and the reason why this was being done at night, if they waited long enough, you know how many witnesses, reliable witnesses, would have stood up and gave testimony to how great Jesus was? how many miracles he performed, the good things that he did, cast out demons, healed people, restored sight to the blind. See, they didn't want people to give those kind of testimonies because that would all prove what Isaiah said about what the Messiah would do when he came, right? Nobody was ever healed of blindness ever until Jesus. So, And the reason why that would never happen is because Jesus is the one who's going to do it to prove who he is. So see, the high priest is frustrated, have, have, doesn't have any good evidence, doesn't have any good witnesses. And he says to Jesus, do you have an answer to the charges of these false witnesses? And look at verse 61. But he kept silent and did not answer. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did it to fulfill prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse number 7 says, Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So Jesus is actually fulfilling prophecy. But you see something else in the background, another indicator that God is sovereign and in control of all the details of this proceeding, all right? Everything being checked off as to what the prophet said exactly the way the prophet said it. And so Jesus is in control. He is not out of control. God is in control of these events, even though it looks like everything is going south. Caiaphas, the high priest, is determined to get to the real question in the matter. And that is this, that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. That is what he wants to ask. He's dying to ask that question. The only problem is, well, protocol says you can't ask that question. Why? Because it's, it's a direct incriminating question. Right? But, of course, we already know that protocol is already out the window. 
So let's break another one of the, the, and violate another protocol. And so he asks a direct, incriminating question. Put your eyes on verse 61. Again, it says, the middle of the verse, uh, again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, Messiah, the son of the blessed one? That's a direct question right now. The high priest, in other words, puts Jesus on the witness stand and asks if he is the Messiah, the Blessed One. Now, so far, there is no reliable witnesses to the truth. But what is quite amazing about this particular text is that there is one faithful, reliable witness. Who is is it, you say? Glad you asked that. Well, let's let's look let's look uh, let Scripture answer that. But before we look at that, well, let's look what it says in verse number sixty-two. This is probably this is an incredible pat. And Jesus said, "This is how he answers him: I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven." Now, of course. He gave them way more than they were asking for. But he just answered, I am. You know what that signified? I am took him right back to the Old Testament when Moses went before Pharaoh and says, when I go before Pharaoh, who shall I tell them sent me and tell, and God says to Moses, tell them I am sent you. I am the God. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the way. All right? He's saying that's that's a signification of deity. He is saying to him, I'm God. All right, I'm God. And not only that, but you shall see me again. Not in this context. And you shall see, it says, the Son of Man. He uses that term again, Son of Man. I'm going to explain it again in a minute. Sitting at the right hand of God, of of the right hand of power. That means that Jesus is saying to them, not only am I going to be standing here, but I am going to be sitting once I'm done here at the right hand of the side of the Father, and I'm going to be making intercession for the saints. And then he says, I'm coming in the clouds of heaven. I'm coming again. He just gave them the whole plan of redemption in this one particular sentence. So, you know, the Son of Man, it was... Jesus alone who gave himself this title. And remember that Jesus avoided using the term Messiah in reference to himself. Instead, he spoke of himself as the son of man, of his coming suffering and death. And the term son of man had a half-concealed and a half-revealed it kind of half-concealed and half-revealed the identity of Jesus of the, of, as the Messiah. Now, because Jesus has been ministering in the context of really substantial misunderstanding and the constant conflicting messianic expectations of the people and of the leadership, he avoids that particular title at all costs. Well, he doesn't avoid it here. In fact, the whole messianic secret is over. They got it, in other words, from the mouth they needed to get it from. In fact, before I go any further, there's three thoughts that converge when Jesus uses the title Son of Man. The first is this. It it lifts Jesus out from among all men as being one who bears the human nature like no other man bears it. See, the true man, but more than a man, God. Yes, Jesus is also the son of the living God, because it became evident when he exhibited his authority over demons, over nature, over disease, over paralysis. And of course, the, the crowning one when Jesus publicly forgave sin. What did they wanted to do with him then when he publicly forgave sin? They wanted to put him to death. So yes, the son of man, it says in Mark 2.10 has the authority on earth to forgive sin. Well, the only one who has the authority to forgive sin is God. So he already he told them there by his actions, not his words, that he was God. 
Secondly, this term son of man connects Jesus to humanity as a suffering servant in his mission. And that's what really Mark takes on in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, For it says, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. But this third one is the one that he really hits in verse 62 of John of Mark chapter 14. And it's this messianic title connected with the greatness of God, the power of God, and the exaltation of God and Christ beyond men. Daniel's description of the Son of Man rules all peoples and nations. The phase Son of Man is used eschatologically in connection with the consummation of all things at the end. In fact, if you like to turn there, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, uh, the prophet actually sees there, as you're turning there, a vision, all right, that there will be a fifth powerful kingdom succeeding the fourth great powerful kingdom in the world. So Daniel sees in his vision one like the Son of Man, and this power is said to be the kingdom of the saints of the Most High that smashes all the other kingdoms and takes over at the, as the last kingdom of this world ruled by Jesus the Messiah. Notice in verse 14 of Daniel 7, if you're there, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, Ancient of Days being the Father. And it says in verse 14, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In other words, Jesus, the Son of Man, comes from the throne of God in the clouds of heaven, ultimately to judge the world, to judge humankind. It's a claim to deity. And of course, Mark, back to the Gospel of Mark, if you notice in chapter 8, I've mentioned these passages already before, but again, it brings this passage into a greater light when you see that he's been saying this all along. These things are not new to his disciples. All right, in John or Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus all along has been telling his disciples, listen, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to be exalted, I'm going to rise from the dead, and I'm coming back again. And I'm coming back the next time as a judge. Also in Mark chapter 13, notice Mark 13, again, verse 26 and 27, the same kind of thing is being said. In verse 26 of Mark 13, it says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth, to the farthest end of heaven. And then, of course, without turning there, it picks up at the end of Revelation, or in the middle of Revelation, it says something like this, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. What what is that? The crown represents Jesus as the king, the one who rules over everything, and a sharp sickle in his hand has to do with the judgment that comes when the Messiah comes again. He comes victorious, but he comes as one who's conquered sin and death 
and Satan and has won the right to act as a judge. So, this title, the the Son of Man, links Jesus to the God-man and to the entire process of redemption and the consummation which will come in the final judgment. Now, by referring to Daniel chapter 7, Jesus is deliberately forcing all those who are listening. He's forcing us to see the paradox. And there is a, a huge paradox here. And the paradox that we find here, and it's, a, and it's, a, it's an enormous turnaround He is the judge over the entire world, yet the Sanhedrin is judging him right now. In other words, Jesus is saying, today I stand before you, but there is coming a day when you will stand before me as the judge of all humanity. And that will be a sad day for not only the Jewish leadership who disbelieve Jesus, but for all who do not believe. Because the enemies of Jesus Christ are all those who do not believe who he is and what he came to do as Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter how nice people are in their refusal to believe Jesus. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter how moral people are on how they live their life how religious they may present themselves in this world. What matters is do you believe in Jesus Christ alone to save you from eternal damnation and from future judgment? If you don't believe that, you are Jesus Christ's enemies and he will become your judge. See, that is what's going on in this passage of Scripture. Of course, someday in the future, the tables will be turned on you when, of course, powerfully, Jesus will demonstrate the truth that he just claimed in this passage when in infinite power, they will see him with experimental perception. Big word, huh? It just means that they're going to experience them standing before him in reality. This is not something that is a dream. This is not something that's fuzzy. This is something that is real. That Jesus will be a real judge and come into this world and real people will stand in front of him and he will judge them and they will have no chance to have a lawyer. They will have no chance. There's no second chance when he comes back for those who disbelieved him. You will see Jesus in his human nature joined with his divine nature and he will act with divine power and authority and not in humiliation and lowliness but in divine glory that's how he's coming so you will one day be conscious he's saying to the Jewish leadership one day you'll be conscious of whom you are about to condemn to death you'll know who I am in my full glory and you won't be able to do anything about it then this is your chance to come and believe. Now, soon as Jesus says this, soon as Jesus says, I am and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, soon as he says that, the situation turned from bad to shameful, a shameful display of dishonor and satanic fun. That's what happens. In other words, Jesus is right on the spot condemned by the high priest. Look what it says in verse 63. It says, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? 
And then he says in verse 64, you have heard the blasphemy. Let me just stop there. See, this high priest, when he received Jesus' statement with his blind eyes and his deaf ears and his dead heart, gave this theatrical response. And what was that? He tears his high priestly garments. All right? That means he was furious. He was overcome with grief and rage. For what reason? Not that Jesus told the truth, but he finally had the evidence. In other words, this is Caiaphas' gotcha moment. Right? I gotcha. What did he get him for? He got him for the penalty of blasphemy. Right? He's, here's a man who's claiming to be God. That's all they saw him of it, as a man. And so, remember, what, what's the verdict of blasphemy in the Old Testament? Well, if you, if you remember what it says in Leviticus, it says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall solemnly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. The only problem is that Jesus didn't blaspheme anybody. All right? Jesus did not do that. Actually, he blessed the name of God by telling the truth about exactly who he was. So, as far as Caiaphas is concerned, the case is settled He bypasses legal procedure again. He doesn't ask for a vote from the other 71. He he has no witnesses. The only witnesses he has is is Jesus himself, who is the reliable witness, the only reliable witness. So he moves and influences the whole council to do one thing, to do what he came there to do. To condemn Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 64. You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? Question to the council. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. That's it. Arrested on false charges. No charges. No witnesses. Puts him on the stand to incriminate himself. And he says that's enough witnesses. Listen. No waiting for a second session or a day. No tabulating the votes for acquittal or guilty. Charges are found without Jewish legal foundations. So as soon as the whole council, which is now, I calling it a kangaroo, kangaroo court, right? That's what's going on here. It says they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And you know, once the leadership makes this decision, what do you think happens in the crowd? The crowd, you know what happens now? Exactly what the crowd came for. Some of the crowd just came wondering, but part of the crowd, the henchmen, the underlings, the rabble-rousers, you know what they came for? A riot. All right? I want to rumble. That's what I want. And so what happens, notice what happens, because that's exactly what takes place. Uh, A riot breaks out, and all the restraints upon the wicked human heart break out against Jesus. And this is really just the kind of atmosphere enjoyed by henchmen, underlings, and rabble-rousers. And what happens, notice in verse number 65, It says, some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So what do they do? They insult Jesus by spitting on him. Isn't that even an insult today? I mean, I think, I don't know if there's a higher insult somebody can give you if they spit in your face. Is there? I don't think so. I think, I, I think that's like the height of disrespect, the height of disbelief, the height of the, the, um, just the depravity of the human heart 
And then what they do is they, they threw a cloth over his head and started slapping his face and yelling, prophesy, tell us, what, tell us which one hit you. Just mocking. And even the temple police join in with greater force and savagely strike Jesus with their fists. Notice what it says in verse um, Oh, it says the officers, and the officers received him with slaps in the face. Actually, that's kind of a kind way of putting it. They were beating him with their fists. All right, they were beating him. And this, this, according to the text, continued for a while. They beat Jesus beyond recognition. Isaiah the prophet tells us, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Isaiah the prophet said that about our Lord 700 years prior, before, plus. All right, so all the, again, things taking place according to the prophetic word, according to how God designed it, so Jesus can take care of things for you and I. Now, of course, the question I would have for you this morning as I come to a close is, Is Jesus your gentle Savior, or is he your ferocious judge? Jesus will either be one or the other. It's like it says in in the book of Acts, when Paul was uh, preaching the word of God, this is what he said. He said, you know Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. And then he says this, We are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And he says, and you knew all about that, and what did you do? You put him to death by hanging him on a cross. So see, it's a matter of belief or unbelief. Either one gets God's wrath or one gets God's mercy. The only match for our defiled, unclean, impure hearts is Jesus Christ's atonement in the place of sinners. That's the only thing that will make us clean before God. It cost him his blood, and it is the only thing that can deal with the problem of evil and the evil that resides in our hearts. When we are born, we are born with a heart of sin. It doesn't take long for a little kid to manifest their wicked heart. As soon as they say no to mommy and daddy, that's rebellion, right? And soon as they have their own will and assert their will over you and want to take over, and believe me, if, ch- if kids are telling you what to do and you're coming and, and doing everything they say, they're in control, not you. Parents, you have the power, man. Use that power. And use it in the right way to direct your children, move them from the evil bents of their heart and show them what it is and then teach them what righteousness is and what it means to live in an honoring way and then, of course, teach them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when one believes in Jesus alone for forgiveness of sin and eternal life, God does not give that person what he or she actually deserves. And what do they deserve? What do we all deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve to be separated from God forever. And we deserve his judgment. But he doesn't give it to the person who believes in Jesus, and that's God's mercy. God had compassion on us. God brought the gospel to us. God opened our eyes to see he resurrected our dead spirits and quickened us so we can what? Believe the truth and not 
believe that it was my works that is going to please God or some good thing that I did, I did to please God. No, it's none of that. It's Christ alone and what he did. It's by faith I am saved, by what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus did before the cross. All these events are before the cross. All of them had to take place to show how righteous Jesus was. And that when he was nailed to the cross, he was the unblemished lamb of God. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the only man who ever lived that could die in the place of sinner. He was the only one. All these things show that he was the only one. So let the Christ in whom we believe not only be the Christ who died for us and rose again, the Christ who lives for us and intercedes for us right now, who, those who believe, but the Christ who will one day return in glory and gather together and reward his people and punish fearfully all his enemies. That's who Jesus is. We often think, people often give the perception that Jesus is this meek person, uh, and that's it. He is that person, but he is way more than that. He is going to be the fierce, ferocious judge that he will judge the world someday. And his judgment will be completely righteous. And it will be total. So, those who don't believe are his enemies. This morning, this text gives us another glimpse of our Lord and should enable us to more passionately and with knowledge, love him more and thank him more for what he accomplished in our behalf, right? So we can, us, us, us sinners can be saved. And, and to me, that is quite encouraging. And, um, and I'm thankful that it's right here in Scripture. Aren't you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Your, again, word is so incredibly clear, Lord. But Lord, I, I often think we would have been in that crowd. We would have been the ones that were possibly mocking you, even spitting on you. But I, I thank you, Lord, that you didn't let us go there. I thank you, Lord, that you stopped us in our tracks. You convicted us of our sin. You showed us who Christ was and what he did. And you granted us faith and repentance so we can believe in you and we can be saved based on nothing we could have ever done, but based on everything you did and accomplished. So for that, Lord, we want to worship you and praise you and thank you. And I ask and praise your name this morning. Amen. Let's stand together.